0: All right, hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. Interviewing people is easy, but that's not the mouthwash way. Instead, we're exploring the less obvious elements of power this evening. Uh, What really is driving the world? Who's working behind the scenes to keep the wheels going? Who's messing things up? What's hard and soft power and how have they changed during a pandemic? What does it all really mean? Who's got power? Who wants it? How do you get it? We're exploring it all. Joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is none other than Thomas Weddles Weddlesburg. Thomas is a world-renowned executive advisor, and his latest book, What's Your Problem?, is from Harvard Business Review, and it got Eric Schmidt, which is Google guy, attention, and he said, if you want the superpower of solving better problems, read this book. Welcome to the show, Thomas. How are you doing? All moved in?
1: I am excellent, thank you. And I think that's the first time ever I've been introduced as a cookie. I find that delightful
0: excellent well Google's changed it all up soon but you know a lot later than they thought but uh, I, I like cookies myself you know but we'll, we'll see how it all goes um, before I chat more with Thomas let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved uh, Twitter Spaces is still a beta product from Twitter so let's explore it a bit um, on the mobile app the top bit is called the nest that's where I or any speaker can post tweets like the ones you can see up there at the moment about lo-fi um, mouthwash uses this to discuss them in a section called desert island tweets uh, you can click through follow accounts links and that's Sort of stuff it's really handy and a unique feature for twitter spaces You can see all of your faces and the speakers are at the top. Uh, Spaces allow up to 11 speakers at a time, that's including the host, so you can have a really good chat with multiple voices, but it's not a free-for-all, doesn't get very noisy and that sort of thing. Request the mic when you're in any space just by clicking the mic at the bottom left, although Mouthwash is more of a show format, so we actually take questions via the hashtag Mouthwash Show. Uh, If you want, you can just click it at the top, Uh, it's the one in blue, so it saves you a bit of clicking and that sort of stuff. Twitter's also recently announced a slew of monetization features, so you they're really serious about spaces. So have a look around, see who's doing them and enjoy them. There's a lot of really good information out there. If you look at the bottom right of your phone screens, you'll actually see some icons. If you click on the dots, um, that's where all the settings are. So you can turn on captions and other accessibility features should you need those as well. Okay, time to share out that you're in the space if you would. So if you please click on the one on the right, it's the little staple with the arrow pointing up. Uh, You'll let the world know that something great happens. If you click it, I'll click it with you and that sort of stuff, we'll all do it together. And then you click share via tweet and then you say live now or whatever you wanna put. Uh, in there and then if you just hit uh, the, gri- uh, the blue green uh, blue tweet button you will absolutely send that to the world and all your followers will know and it'll be great and we'll put it in apart from being nice people and that's just a nice thing to do we're actually planting a tree for every live listener that we get uh, courtesy of the folks at Ecology uh, they make uh, offsetting carbon footprints super easy and you can find out more about them over at Ecology.com and that's ecolog com. whether it's for yourself or you your business elliot and the team over there are great partners and uh, i've worked with them for tbd for years and that's the conference where i met thomas and that's the thing thanks also to shell for sponsoring the show shell has recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner obviously in step with society find out more about how shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress okay it is time now to shower Thomas in emojis. Click the heart with a plus and start showering him while I introduce Thomas. And please don't stop until the end. All right. So if everyone's found the heart, show me that you found the emoji icon down the bottom and show me an emoji. Excellent. Thomas has done it. All right. Interactive show. Everyone else hit your emoji. It's the heart with a plus at the bottom. Pick whichever ones you want. Excellent. All right. You've got Randy. you got Joss. Excellent. Everyone is up for it. Okay. Right. Ready. Steady. Go. Thomas weddle Weathersburg works with the likes of Cisco, Microsoft, United Nations, Citigroup, Time Warner, Credit Suisse, and Deloitte, just a few tiny companies. He helps them solve big, chunky, almost impossible problems. His research has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, The Sunday Times, The Telegraph, BBC Radio, Bloomberg Businessweek, and the Financial Times. He's author of multiple books, and the latest of which, What Your Problem, is an Amazon bestseller and recommended reading. You can find out more about Thomas over at howtoreframe.com. He's also a TBD alum and a very nice gent to start with thanks for joining us thomas how was the first thing uh what was the first thing you thought of this morning
1: huh uh, that i had to get out of bed which is not my favorite activity
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, never is it never is <laughs> no, uh, I, I guess because you've moved you've got you've got everything going on right
1: yeah, I moved into a new apartment here uh two days ago, so everything's a mess and like even finding my toothbrush is kinda like a challenge.
0: So, yeah. so... <laughs> Well, hopefully that gets set through. That's that's half of the fun of it, isn't it, when you move into a new place and that sort of stuff. Apart from moving in, how's the last twelve months been for you?
1: Uh actually pretty positive overall. Uh given everything that's been going on, I've I think The book uh, launched uh, a year ago now, and I feared that it would get drowned completely because it launched at the same time as COVID. And uh, luckily, that was not the case. Uh, It seems to have struck a nerve, perhaps because it is around problem solving, and it's kind of getting translated into 13 languages so far. So uh, I I feel uh, a a lot of people had had it worse than I did.
0: Whoa. I didn't know 13 languages. That's also well done. Um, Tell me a bit about the book. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it because personally, it feels to me like a workbook. It's sort of set up in that way with the canvas, which we'll talk about later. Um, You wrote it to be worked on as you sort of go the way through it. What made you write the book in the first place and why did you write it in that way?
1: I think it's really about solving the right problems. And the key moment for me was uh, some years ago, I was teaching this skill of reframing or or, uh, solving the right problems to a big tech company that had invited like 300 of their top talent in the entire company. Uh, And that two-hour session that I taught them, it was part of a one-week-long kind of seminar, and that ended up being the top-rated session for the entire week. Now, that's worrying because if if people working in a Fortune 500 company, like the top 2% of the company, don't already know how to solve the right problems, I mean, then we have a problem, so to speak. So I, I think that was the key incident that really made me realize it was necessary to come out and, and kind of create a practical guide for how to get better at framing problems, at at solving the right problems. Mm.
0: Um, I remember at TBD, you went through um, the slow elevator problem. Um, Can you take us through that? Because I think it's such a powerful way to sort of get across why reframing is so imperative for pandemic and post-pandemic success. Um, I I know I've used it with several clients um, already. While you um, start, I will put it up in the next. And
1: and for the listeners here, uh, this is the perfect 45 second way to explain somebody else why reframing is important, uh, if if you're meeting somebody and you feel they don't, they aren't focused on the right problem. So here's the story: you imagine that you are the owner of an office building and people are complaining about the speed of the lift, so the tenants aren't happy. Now, what most people do there is to jump into solution mode and say, "Okay, how do we make the elevator faster?" And that kind of traps you in one specific framing of the problem. If you ask a landlord, uh, somebody with experience with this, there's something that they very often do when people complain about slow elevators, and that is to put a mirror up in the hallway. Because of course, what happens is people see their own reflection, they fall endlessly in love, forget time and space, and everybody's happy. Now, the key about that story is that you are not solving for the speed of the elevator. You're solving a different problem in this case, namely that the weight is annoying for people. So that core idea, that simple story of the slow elevator problem really captures the essence of, of reframing. Why is it important to pay attention to how you frame the problem in the first place?
0: Yeah, definitely. I've um, put it up in the nest for people. So if you want to just go up to the nest and click through, and you'll be able to see it. There are four elements to it. And it's very, very, very easy to follow. Um, let's talk about the business world and problems. I was surprised um, during your TBD talk to find out that you've interviewed a ton of people, obviously, for the book. But 85 percent in some research that you did of companies say that they tend to solve the wrong problems. I think that's ridiculously high. Like how is, why is that so high? And how do we sort of get that down?
1: I was equally surprised by it. Like I interviewed 106 uh, CEOs and C-suite executives and I basically asked them, how is your company doing on this? Like to to what degree are your people good at making sure they tackle the right problems? 85% of them came back and said, that's actually something not only we aren't that good at, but also that we spend a lot of time and money on. Like they, they, they said, we waste significant resources on solving the wrong problems. So uh, that was another wake up call for me. Uh, I did some subsequent research as well, where I asked experts and went in like, if, if you're an expert problem solver, like a management consultant, or you work in a design agency, and I kind of asked, when clients come to you with a problem, how often is that the right problem? The answer that uh, more than 200 people in that survey gave me was basically, if you have five problems, in two of the cases, that's the right problem. In two of the cases, there's something significant about the problem that needs to be rethought. And in the final case, it's completely flat out the wrong question that the client is focused on. So uh, another indication that this is, is a big issue. Now, uh, you asked, how do we get better at it? <laughs> the, um, at, at the risk of kind of uh, maybe simplifying this a little too much and we can delve deeper, I'd say it really starts with awareness of, of understanding the key difference between framing and, for instance, analyzing a problem. If, if you go in with a slow elevator and you analyze that, well, what people do is they ask, why is the elevator slow? They might use the five whys method or similar. And that shows the danger of just sticking with analysis because why is the elevator slow kind of gets you down in a rabbit hole focusing on, again, the speed of the elevator and the causal system around that. So the key question is actually, or the key skill is to understand framing is different from analysis. Framing is the question, what do we pay attention to in the first place? Is it necessarily about the speed of the elevator or is it something different? Uh, So... I, I, that's really step one, uh, getting an understanding of what it is and a story you can share with others when you're having these conversations with them. Step two, and we can delve deeper into that. I'll, I'll stop talking now, um, is really to start practicing it and start to get the, uh, the process of how you reframe a problem, which is really the majority of what my book is about. So, yeah. so I'll, I'll pause here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, carry on. Apart from, um, uh, you know, practicing and that sort of thing, when it comes to problem solving, do you think that, that businesses should sort of give themselves a score out of 10 or sort of there should be some sort of metric around a KPI? It, problems are always going to come up big and small, some chunky, some sort of simple. Every company is different. But the way that they attack problems seems to be um, a very core way of measuring whether they're a good company or not. Would, would you agree with that?
1: I have not looked directly at creating an assessment for it. What I've normally done is to ask people about their own personal experience, like looking at the people you work with in your job or in your prior job. How To what extent do people solve the wrong problems? To what extent do clients come to you with the wrong concern? Uh, and sometimes, to what extent do they solve maybe, you know, a right problem, but there's a much better problem to solve there. Like one of, one of the elements of the slow elevator story is, maybe you could fix it by buying a new elevator, but that's a really expensive solution. There's typically, for most of the problems we face, there's multiple ways of trying to attack them and reframing can sometimes help you find creative approaches to it, like a much cheaper, faster, simpler way of doing it uh, and a more effective way that, that kind of beats what the competition is doing Uh, Or similar. So that's really been my anchor so far. And kind of, you know, look at yourself and the people you work with, uh, and for that matter, your private life, and kind of ask are we solving the right problems? And if not, well, that might be a skill you want to get better at you as a person or with your team or even as a society, if you you wish.
0: Mm. Just sticking with business for a sec, um, does the scale or size of a business Have you seen it have more or less of an impact on problem solving compared to say um, bad bad communication or siloed mentality, or does something else sort of have to be the biggest issue there?
1: I'd say I have almost stopped thinking of businesses as an entity. Like we we tend to talk about oh Apple did this Google did did that. What I found through the last fifteen years of kind of being immersed in companies is. It's really just an, like a lot of different ecosystems coupled together. So you might encounter one area of the business that's actually fairly on top of it, but they may have some kind of process for when, when they're encountering a problem, going in and kind of thinking about how it's framed. And another part of the business can be completely in the wilds with it. And they, they're just in, you know, classic order-taking mode. They take an IT department that's kind of their internal clients come to them and say, hey, we would like an app that does this, and the IT folks they just say, "Sure, what color do you want them?" Like, which is the wrong place to start. <laughs> so uh, I, I've I've kind of stopped thinking about corporate level and much more focused on you know the the micro environments that we really get most of our work done. In. I don't
0: know if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh no, I think so. I think so. Um, when you think of environments that are conducive to uh people thinking critically which is something i constantly hear from clients is that you know people don't think critically or we need to up that sort of skill set reframing sort of thing, seems to sort of fit in that it's having that sort of mental agility to sort of um f- flip around and look at things from a different perspective that's not a skill that we tend to sort of teach hardcore at universities and schools and that's sort of thing. is that where it should start or do you think businesses should take the lead and go do you know what Get, get taught at university, we'll tell you how to think critically or our way of thinking.
1: I'm really trying to democratize reframing. So I'm also exploring right now how this could be taught at universities and, and kind of wherever we teach it to people. But we do need of course to teach this to people who work in companies right now because most of us aren't going back to university anytime soon. Uh, so uh, I, I, I'd say this is really a question of hitting people on wherever they are, kind of just getting it out and democratizing it. Now you're asking about the environment. Um, I, I tend to think of it as as kind of there, there's the base and the advanced case. The base case is that you're working with your daily team. Now there you could go in and work with you know psychological safety. Uh, that's Amy Edmondson's great work uh, on kind of how to get a, a team that's comfortable speaking up. Uh, You can kind of anchor some habits. You can uh, have, you know, checklists lying around for with the reframing strategies. Uh, There's a lot of things you can do to kind of anchor it in with your closest colleagues. That's the base case. The advanced case is when you're dealing with a client, when you're dealing with a boss who doesn't understand it. And that's where you need to get a little bit more focused on the tactical parts of how to do it. So, you know, you, you can't go in and create psychological safety with a client easily. It might be the first time you interact with them. But what you can do is to learn some of the basic questions to ask when they come with a problem to help them realize, hey, we need to rethink this problem and to start getting a right gra- Like some of the strategies I share in the book around how to do it. That It's really a tactical question or or skill set question of getting better at asking the right questions.
0: Yeah. I've put up in the nest frame, analyze and solve. Is that what you were referring to there?
1: Yeah, that's that's really the core uh, three elements of problem solving, right? Mm-hmm. That you uh, you solve the problem, of course, and you uh, ideally you analyze it before you solve it. But then there's this framing part we've been talking about which is often the overlooked part. And what, what that graphic illustrates is really the importance of seeing this as a cyclical thing. You're like very inspired by the lean startup approach. This is not something where you go in and do the perfect framing and analysis up front and then just go solve it. No, you, you, you question your framing, you go in and analyze it, then you go out and do a prototype, or you uh, do customer interviews, or whatever you do. And then you go back and say, given what we learned from our experiments, are we solving the right problem? Are, are we framing this correctly? What do we need to understand better? So, so this is very reminiscent, of course, of the work of um, uh, Steve Blank, uh, Lean Startup and so on, but with more emphasis on really getting this framing right, not just brute forcing it through, say, prototyping or minimum viable products and so on.
0: Mm. Um, you talk in the book uh, a lot about, you know, the, the person and the problem and that sort of stuff. Um, you bring up a good point. I think about people problems that we always tend to assume that there's a deep psychological, historical reason for really bad behavior, poor judgments and that sort of stuff. Why is that wrong?
1: I wouldn't say it's wrong. It, it's it's more just a framing. We sometimes over prioritize. Mm-hmm. Example, uh, my friend Tanya Luna and her husband, Brian. Early in their relationship, they used to fight a lot. Uh, they have a great marriage, but kind of just got into these really hair-raising arguments about who who walked the dog or budgets or whatnot. In the beginning, they started to say, well, we're from different cultures. Like, Tanya was from Ukraine, uh, uh, kind of uh, Brian, uh, originally Mexican, and they were kind of like, well, your childhood and different values and blah, 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 and none of that helped. Like, it was just... They just recycled their past endlessly without really making progress. What changed the game in that case was they started to look for what I call bright spots. That's one of the strategies in the book, looking for positive exceptions, instances where the problem was not as bad or where you might actually have solved it even once. And that happened for Tanya and Brian when they realized that they were having a discussion about the budget, which was normally really tense. But it was going very flawlessly and what was the difference well they were unusually having it at 10 o'clock in the morning instead of 10 o'clock at night they they were discussing it over a late breakfast where they were well rested everybody kind of were in a good mood and tanya suddenly realized that a big part of the problem with their fights was that they tended to have them uh, after 10 in the evening That old advice you may have heard at weddings about, like, never let the sun go down over your anger. That's a terrible advice because that makes you take difficult fights when you have least energy and and mental surplus to to kind of manage your emotions and all that. So that's just a classic example of saying it might be true that there are psychological deep-rooted Freudian issues and reasons for why we do what we do. But there are also other aspects to the problem in this case like the timing of when we had these discussions and that might be a much much easier or more accessible problem to try to deal with so it's not so much the wrong angle it's more the recognition that problems are multi-causal and that means there's multiple different ways of trying to attack them
0: okay so um one of the things i um do rarely is look back I tend to sort of be asked to look forward and that sort of stuff but I found looking back in the mirror um something that was really sort of powerful for me personally in the book can you explain what what the technique is and why it's so powerful in solving issues
1: we have a habit of um when there's a problem we tend to assume automatically I'm the innocent victim the problem is really caused by these people over here who we will use the professional term idiots for. Like we, we're we're just very quick at looking at other people and saying they are creating the problem. Now that's a very emotionally comfortable way of looking at a problem. Uh, but in reality, of course, even if they are partially creating the problem, your own behavior or maybe a lack of an action that you're not taking or whatever typically contributes to the problem as well so this the strategy i share in the book as well look in the mirror is really about going in and saying what am i doing that's making the problem continue or 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 arise in the first place that can require a little bit of uh, courage like you know going in and questioning say your own leadership style or looking at your interactions with a difficult family member and kind of asking what could I do differently here? Instead of expecting them to necessarily change. Uh, it, it can be quite painful, uh, humiliating, and it can also be really, really powerful.
0: Definitely. I, when I um, saw it in the canvas, I was glad that it was in the canvas and it was giving such prominence. I've shared that in the nest in, in case people want to click through and sort of look at it. But um, talk people quickly through the canvas. Um, obviously, you know, by the book, you'll understand it a whole lot better than you'll get in this description. But. Uh, the move forward bit and everything like that. Just explain why it sort of flows the way it does.
1: Um, first first observation here, just uh, the canvas that, that Paul is sharing now, you can actually download that for free on my website. There's no kind of sign up stuff or anything. Uh, there's also a checklist with the strategies and so on if you wanna start playing around with it uh, without necessarily plucking down the money on the book initially. Um, so what's the canvas? The canvas is really to capture the method in one page, and you'll you'll notice if you look at it uh, that it has three steps. It's really this overall process of saying frame, reframe, move forward. Framing is when you go in and literally ask the question, wait, are we solving the right problem? Or how is this problem framed? Reframing is when you spend at least five minutes, it can be that short, ideally with maybe one or two other people, questioning your understanding the framing of, of the problem. Uh, and we'll get a little bit more into the details there. And the third step I realized was necessary to add because um, the big danger of reframing is of course that you get stuck, like that you endlessly talk over a problem without really uh, moving forward. And so every time you do this, you need to stop by by saying, okay, we've now had a discussion around the framing what is a next step we can take to either test the framing or validate it or talk to somebody or do an experiment or try a solution if you can and so on. So really making sure you don't uh, you know, get stuck on a mountaintop thinking deep thoughts. Uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm a big fan of mountaintops and deep thoughts. Um, now uh, the hard part of that, of course, and the part that people are least used to at least is the middle part. Of, that, of understanding what types of questions are helpful for reframing. Because I found you can easily sit down for five minutes and ask questions, but it's not actually all questions that are equally good. Like, for instance, what we spoke about earlier, that, that method of asking why five times, that can actually just make you dig deeper into the original framing, which is a bad thing. So, the five strategies I've, I've outlined here, uh, and we, we covered some of them, they are really strategies I have tested on a lot of different executives, a lot of different uh, kind of companies and industries, and just found them to be helpful in terms of surfacing new angles. We covered uh, the one with looking in the mirror, we covered the bright spot story looking for positive exceptions. Uh, The three we haven't really touched on, maybe I'll share a story from one of them here, um, is looking outside the frame uh, instead of digging deeper, trying to rethink your goal, understanding what success looked like, and then taking their perspective, like genuinely trying to understand what problems the other people involved in your issue are dealing with. Um, So so, uh, I'll pause there. I I can share if you like. I can share. uh, We haven't touched the outside the frame one. And I, I do have a pretty interesting example that's not in the book that, that, uh, that I thought of sharing, if that works. So where, where do you want to go, Paul?
0: Uh, your choice, Dina's choice. Go for it. Okay, story time.
1: Uh, a friend of mine, Henri Redland, has just gone public with his company. Uh, and that company is called Backbox, founded by him, Matt Meeker, and Cardi strike And what Backbox does is they send boxes of treats To dogs, uh, and specifically, like, you know, the dog parents, if you will. Uh, Huge success. uh, They they have, uh, I think it's a month ago, they went public here. And one of the things that Backbox is really, really good at is actually understanding what types of toys dogs prefer. Now, Paul, you can be my audience here, but like, if you think of a dog toy, a dog toy has a lot of different qualities, like how it smells, how it sounds, all of that stuff. What would you guess, and, and I know you, you, you will probably not get this right because that's part of the story, but take a guess. What quality about a dog toy do you think is most important for whether the dog likes it or not?
0: Oh, um, my sister has a beagle that she loves that destroys everything. So for me, I would assume it's like how it feels in its mouth. Mouthfeel,
1: right? I mean, I mean, that's very true for a lot of the food we eat, right? Uh, everybody who's eaten soggy popcorns <laughs> can, can attest to that. Yeah. Uh, that's important, but there is actually one factor that is the most important one, what, what Bach found, and it's a surprising one because it's outside the frame of what you normally look at. What is that frame or what is that factor? It is whether it is a toy that makes their human interact with them Ah. example like one of their uh, best-selling toys is like they went out and created in 2016 with the election they created uh uh, one of donald trump and one of hillary clinton massive uh, sales success why well because what would happen is that the talk the dog would grab donald trump And it would go up and wrestle it around and the owner would get excited either because they're pro-Trump or against Trump. Uh, And they would uh, kind of play with the dog and so on. And what the dog wants most of all is actually not the toy. It is to play with with its parents, with its human. And so dogs prefer toys that have a narrative or some kind of thing that makes the human try to engage more with it. And if you look at their, their site, they've been really, really good at coming up with toys where you can kind of see, oh, my dog is bringing me a rose. Or my dog is doing uh, this and this. That, of course, also helps them on Instagram and so on because people post about them. Hey, my dog came up and gave me a rose today. Isn't she cute? And so on. So that's an example of this notion of looking outside the frame, uh, noticing how it is framed, and then asking what is missing from this equation, like what are we not looking at? We're looking at the physical properties of the toy, but we're not necessarily looking at that question of the human interaction with it. The ha- Does the toy make the human parent want to play more with it? Um, so really interesting example that didn't make it into the book because it was published uh, uh, after, or th- this happened after it, it was published.
0: Interesting. Um, I, was, I'm, I- Annoyed myself, I didn't get that right. But anyway, um, you mention in the book um, the old saying of giving a child a hammer uh, and they'll see everything as a nail. Um, I think adults can be guilty of this too. I know I can and that sort of stuff. How do people let go of the hammer when it comes to problem solving?
1: Uh, the hammer is a classic saying by uh, Abraham Kaplan, actually. Uh, Maslow uh, said it too uh, back in 64, namely the observation that we have favourite tools. And the way memorable way he expressed that was, you know, if you give a kid a hammer, they'll treat everything as a nail. Now, I think there's a nuance with that because we all have hammers. We all have favorite tools or solutions with which we attack the world. That's not a bad thing. We have those because they often work. So there's nothing wrong per se about, you know, sticking to your favorite solution initially, at least if, as long as you can reverse it. If your favorite solution is brain surgery, maybe you should step more softly. Um, but what's wrong is when people keep using the hammer, even if it's not working. Like that's the biggest mistake I see people making. They go in and they try their solution. You know, let's, let's make this specific, a startup. Uh, and that startup's product is not really selling as well as it should. Now, what do every startup founder do? They say, we need better marketing. Of course, the problem is that people are not aware of our wonderful solution, and therefore, we just need to double our marketing budget, and, and then we'll be fine. That's great. But in my experience, when you're looking at a startup and things aren't really selling, you know, at least half of the time, if not more, there's actually an issue with the product or there's an issue with the way you sell it, or there's, an, like, there's something else going on which marketing will not solve. And yet I see startup after startup going in and saying, oh, oh, we didn't get the marketing campaign quite right. Let's try a new, slightly different campaign with a new agency and then we'll hopefully get it. Like stepping back, realizing when you're over applying your favorite hammer and starting to ask, oh, is there actually a different way of thinking about this problem where our favorite tool or approach may not be right for this and here of course diversity plays a key role like the more you tend to have this conversation with marketing people only the the more you tend to get trapped in that perspective
0: i think um let's talk about people implementing still, because I think that's an important one. I, reframing definitely, it jumps off the page when you read the book as it's something I should have been doing, it's easy to do and that sort of stuff, but actually the the, the physical doing of it when you have your boss in front of you could be quite challenging for some people. Um, I think it's harder these days just because of Zoom, stress, uh, uncertainty, fear of what's going on and that sort of stuff. Do you have any tips um, for people who are on a different rung to speak to power when they're reframing potential solutions that may or may not sort of gel with them?
1: I'd say uh, you probably have to make an initial determination of whether you're going over or under the radar. What do I mean with that? Um, Going over the radar is say you're dealing with your boss or client that you explicitly convince them to spend time on the problem. Like you maybe go in and share the slow elevator story. Maybe you wave a copy of the book in their face and say, hey, this is a Harvard published method. It's, maybe we should actually spend 15 minutes looking at this. Now that's assuming you think you can actually get them to do that. What I've seen a lot of my, uh, call them research topics or, or clients uh, do, is to go under the radar. And that means recognizing sometimes you cannot get your client or boss to accept that you need to do this and then finding ways of doing it anyway. For instance, um, one of the people I write about in the book is a designer called Chris Dame. And Chris went in at one point and uh, worked with this company where they were, they basically pulled Chris in to simplify an internal system. Uh, They had this knowledge sharing platform that they wanted their people to contribute to, and that wasn't happening. And when they had spoken to their people, they said, well, it's too complicated to use. It's kind of a hassle. Chris had a sense that there was something off there, but the client wouldn't listen to that. So what did he do? He went out and did a bunch of uh, employee interviews without the seniors in the room. He anonymized their input and he shared it back with the executives and showed them, Hey, here's what your people are actually saying when you're not in the room. What did it turn out to be? It was around incentives. Like there was basically in the company, this perception of if you started sharing your knowledge, you might make yourself vulnerable to getting fired or laid off or or similar. And there was no like helping others didn't feature in any way into, for instance, promotion decisions. So everybody was just scrambling to get onto the right project and not caring about anybody else that at the company, so like they didn't actually need to fix the interface at all. What they needed to do was A, to make basically a system where others could acknowledge your help. So you could see on this thing, hey, uh, Tony was really, really helpful here uh, on a lots of different projects. And then B, they took that into consideration when they looked at promotion decisions and a lot of other things. The elegance here, I think, was that Chris just went in and said, OK, OK, we'll we'll take your problem for granted. Now, we still need to understand it a little bit better. So uh, I'm just going to talk to a few people and see what happens. And and gathering ammunition, that helped. Another simple thing you can do sometimes is to invite somebody else into the room. Like, can you pull in people who will tell the truth to, to whoever it is, or at least put something on the table they didn't expect? So sometimes, it's not about controlling the process, it's more about controlling the guest list uh, for, for a meeting, if you will. So that's, um, that's some of the t- tactics I recommend. There's a whole chapter in the book, uh, I think it's chapter 11, that kind of deals with this issue of resistance and how you can potentially handle uh, some of that.
0: Yeah, I remember in the book um, as well. You talk about writing down a stakeholders map as a key part of defining um, any problem, and that that's definitely something I recommend everyone reading because that's helped me no end figure out how I'm going to frame things, when I'm going to tell people stuff, and that sort of thing. It's definitely one of the interesting um, parts. I didn't quite. Uh, expect to be in the book but it it, but it was a big part that sort of stayed with me um I have a story about um one of the things that you talk about in the book which is resistance um I think it's a big problem with problem solving I've definitely come up against it a lot of time in my career um the example I like to give is when I first came back to the UK uh, and there was a brief that I got with the company that I was working for for four million pounds to get dads in Birmingham to take their kids to school Um, because some research somewhere had said uh, that would make the world spin faster or something I can't quite remember the reason for why but it, it was it was a valid brief one that i read twice before i thought it was april falls but anyway um fast forward to me saying that they would uh, that they should buy a taxi service and give the other three million back or make a school with it and i was laughed out of the room um how can people overcome resistance when it, in the, in the face of you know overwhelming stupidity or or we've always done it this way what's your best sort of tips for when it when it you know resistance and how you sort of overcome the friction
1: I would say if you're faced with overwhelming stupidity, you might have bigger problems than, than resistance. Uh, that, that's just a long, long slog. But true enough, we, we're sometimes trapped in it. Um, I mean, sometimes I think you need to uh, solve a different problem than when you what you think you need to solve. What do I mean with that? Um, whether your client is stupid or not, trust tends to play a really big role. And what looks like stupidity, can actually be many different things. Like it can be, you know, they question your incentives. They, they may be worried that you want to create more work for yourself somehow. Uh, they may question your judgment because they haven't seen enough proof that you can actually deliver. They, they think, hey, you're a great, say, designer, but what do you know about strategy? And so very often what you think is stupidity or like, you know, but, you know bad, the classic bad behaviors we ascribe to people there's actually something underneath that um, example. A uh, story I tell in the book uh, about a woman called Rosie who is working uh, for a client and the client wants a media campaign and uh, the client is insisting that this media campaign needs to have a YouTube video that goes viral as measured by, I don't know how many clicks uh, that they need for it. They go in and explain their the client, hey, this is actually not the right tool because what you want in this case is a different type of interaction. Like a viral video with just clicks is gonna, not necessarily going to give you what you want. The client is not listening. They're just completely you know, doubling down and they say, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but we need the YouTube video. So what happens is Rosie, spelling that there might be something going on here, invites the clown out for a drink. And as they are, you know, two cosmopolitan's in, uh, the truth comes out, namely that the client's boss is the stupid one and has kind of just insisted on this YouTube video being uh, part of it. and, And the client's bonus is actually dependent on whether they get this or not. The second Rosie understands this, then she goes, oh, great. Well, what we could do here is to use a small part of the budget on just literally buying untargeted uh, YouTube video cl- <laughs> clicks so we get that video, and then we can use the rest of the budget for the things we know work. Super simple example of just going in and saying, wait a second, like, let's dig a little bit deeper instead of just assuming that the, our counterpart, whether our client or our spi- spouse or somebody else, uh, they're just stupid or malicious, like, you go in and dig deeper, and and very often you recognize that there's something else going on on their side of the table that you can potentially. Once you understand that, you can potentially change course. It. Um, I think that's pretty. I, I was about to launch into a different story about it, but I want to be mindful of not uh, kind of talk, talking too much. Uh, so, Paul, uh, back to you.
0: Okay, no, it's fine. I don't, you talk as much as you need to. Um. I really like the thinking or rethinking rather probably around the marshmallow test. Lots of people may have known about that experiment, but you take it from a different way in the book. Um, Can you explain why it's about money and not willpower?
1: Marshmallow test. uh, Well, that really refers to the classic study by uh, Walter Mitchell, where they went in. I'm sure many of you have seen videos of this. uh, They put a marshmallow in front of a kid and said, hey, if you don't touch this marshmallow for 15 minutes, you're going to get a second marshmallow uh that was heralded as a classic finding that has like it has led to this whole industry around uh, willpower, persistence, uh grit if you will kind of saying we need to teach people to kind of you know if you will not eat the marshmallow because then they have much better outcomes that was the original finding that the kids who are good at not eating the marshmallow they fared a lot be- better in later in life on a lot of different uh, measures. Now, this led to the assumption that uh, it is really just all about p- teaching people to uh, resist temptation. Uh, and it's, it's all about willpower, kind of an internal measure or kind of executive control, it's been called as well. Then a new study came out because it turned out Mitchell had had done this uh, with, I think it was 90 families uh, from the Stanford campus that he worked at. And they were, as you can imagine, all fairly privileged. Once they repeated that study, broadening the the people they did it with and also picking people who were not necessarily uh, financially privileged and so on, there was a completely different picture that turned out. And that picture was that this was not about willpower. It was actually about Uh, economics it it was about basically if you're a kid who's comfortably raised middle class or higher then you're used to two things you're used to food always being around and you're used to your parents if they promise you something well they're probably gonna deliver on it the second day went in and looked at kids who had had a more disadvantaged upbringing well what's true when you've had that one food isn't always around tomorrow and second like even well-intended parents can't always keep their promises and so there it turned out there's really just a link here between socioeconomic conditions and people's ultimate uh, outcomes that was much stronger than necessarily the, the willpower thing so this wasn't about you know hey we just need to teach people willpower it seems based on this the new study that you're better off figuring out you know the, Basic question that I think most of the U.S. and many other countries are dealing with now is how do we get society right? How, how do we prevent massive inequality? Uh, how do we make sure people don't grow up in extreme poverty uh, in, in an otherwise really successful country, and so on? And I think that's that to me was also thought-provoking because it shows that reframing isn't just about you know avoiding fight, fights with your spouse or fixing slow elevators it is equally important for the big social and and political issues that that you know that we are facing every day in the US and and elsewhere uh, and in the UK of course where you are
0: that so perfectly sums up why i wanted you on this season of mouthwash i do believe that we have big problems in the world and the way that we have solved them previously isn't potentially the best way or even the way that they should have been done last time. I do believe that capitalism is a force in this world, both good and bad, but I believe that people are making decisions based on very old economics rather than looking to the future and that sort of stuff. So that, that last sentence absolutely sums up for me why uh, I've definitely made a good choice here, Thomas. Thank you. I've got a couple of last questions. Then I'll move on to desert Island um, tweets and that sort of stuff. And then you get to go and unpack, um, how much does analogous thinking fit in with reframing? Um, do they work well together? Is it sort of one part of the same thing?
1: It's related. Uh, so analogous thinking is really the notion of taking something from one domain and applying it to a different domain. Uh, and really, that's how we think most of the time, to go in and kind of borrow from other things we've dealt with. So uh, if you dealt a lot with incentive problems, you tend to take incentives uh, in and, and put the, uh, like approach problems from an incentive angle. Uh, the key here is not necessarily whether you, you use an analog, uh, analogical thinking or not, but whether you have enough diverse perspectives in the room. Uh, because one of, one of the core findings with diversity, uh, which, which is a key part of reframing, is really that it works but there's also a couple of things you need to get right with it. Because what I've seen go wrong is you go in, you think, okay, we need diversity. And then you invite people in who are completely different. Like, you know, if you're a physicist, you think, hey, let's get the balloon animal artist into the room so we can get a really outside artist perspective and whatnot. Two practical barriers there. One is they're hard to get hold of. Like in in your daily work, if you're really trying to get somebody who's completely removed from your field, Well, you're you're gonna have a hard time finding them. You're gonna have have a hard time even bridging like the explanation and so on. So one of the things I found is that sometimes diversity on a smaller scale can work. It can work to discuss a problem with a colleague in a different department. It can work to discuss it with somebody who's in your function, but works in a different company. Uh, Like the, the general rule of thumb is the more, Urgent or important the problem, the more energy you need to invest in pulling truly diverse perspectives into the room. But that shouldn't stop you from making do with whatever diversity you can get into the room. On like, it, it's Wednesday afternoon here. Like, you have an hour to do this. Uh, how do we move forward? And even a little diversity can help you uh, if if you can't make it work on a, on a bigger scale. Um. I would say one more thing around the diversity angle and kind of the way we reason, which is when you pull in diverse voices into a room, don't expect them to have solutions for you because they are by nature further away from the problem than you are. What is important is that they understand they are there to question your thinking. So, so don't ask them in and expect them to come up with the answer. Invite them in and say, hey, we have this problem. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. What do you think I'm getting wrong with this? What questions would you have and so on? What happens when this works is not typically that the the outsider, if you will, comes in with a really powerful new perspective. It is more that they ask a question which makes the problem owner suddenly see things in a new light. So general rule about diversity, keeping that in mind is actually important to make it work in practice.
0: I like that point. I, I definitely uh, definitely, am going to be using that in some uh, boardrooms that are coming up for sure. Um, final question. What's the next book about? What's making your brain jiggle at the moment?
1: Huh. Uh, I'm trying to figure that out myself at the moment. My pattern has been, uh, this is my second book. I kind of publish a book. Uh, I take a year where I don't want to see a keyboard again. I just don't want to write anything. And then I gradually get my mojo back around, uh, sniffing around what's my next thing. Next thing. Right now, I'm kind of, if you ask me to guess, it's kind of one is trying to work this in more towards a policy angle. I, it is a book that mostly describes uh, kind of work problems and similar. Uh, and I want to do more work in terms of figuring out how we tackle this from a from a social angle. How do we get politicians to work better together? How do we solve some of the the, the big issues from climate change to whatever that we're facing right now? Uh, the other thing I've been thinking about, and this is a pet project, is kind of a guide to thought leadership. When I think about what has enabled me to publish two books with Harvard Business Press, I, I do have a little bit of a process for around how I do it. And I've been thinking about putting that together. Probably not a book, because books take a long time to get out, and they're a ton of work, uh, but <laughs> but something that I that I might do with it. So. If For those of you who are listening, if you're interested, uh, I have a newsletter that you can sign up for the, on my website that uh, I very sporadically post things to. Uh, let me pause here. Back to you, Paul.
0: I definitely see a Substack in your future, 100%. Um, Okay, it's time for Thomas's Della and Tweets, the part of mouthwash where uh, the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So please turn your attention to the nest, Thomas. Tell us about the tweet that you've picked uh, from Ethan Mollick and why this one.
1: I uh, this there there's kind of two levels to this tweet. Uh, one is that. It's just a really interesting study looking at the question of happiness and what this particular thing is is kind of a meta study so when you when you compile different papers and look at the results and it just has some very specific recommendations for for happiness like if you've been if you've been reading about it you're not going to be wildly surprised that you know communities and friends and family and so on really matter the most and a lot of other things don't um, but the reason I also share this is because I found when I first joined Twitter, I actually struggled with it because I thought it was one big shout fest and kind of not very interesting. And then I learned, hey, I can actually follow people who tweet research. This guy here, Ethan Mollick, he's at Wharton, is a really good example. He tweets out on a, you know, every third day or whatever, he tweets out a new scientific paper or an old one that's really interesting and kind of summarizes it and gives you the link to it. So, I found that to be a super helpful inspiring way of using Twitter to just find people who are kind of research spreaders within whatever spaces you're interested in and follow them and read what what they do. Uh Ethan here is a good start for, for those who who uh, want to check him out.
0: Brilliant. And I've just shared your second one from Ron Iver. Do dogs understand elevators or are they just like it's okay to get into the world changer? <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh
1: I'd say this is the second example uh, of, of kind of the same idea, the way you can use Twitter to follow research. I love to use it for humor as well. So I just found like my perfect Twitter feed is a mix of like 10% whatever, and then 50% research, 50% people who are funny on Twitter. Like Now, the reason I picked this particular suite is because I think it's actually very elegant. Like... One thing is that it's a hilarious joke, like dogs seeing elevators as world changers. But also, this, like, run here, he actually came up with something pretty unique, namely around perspective taking. Uh, again, one of the reframing strategies I talked about. This is so typical that we walk around, and even with our closest, our colleagues, our family, our dogs, pets, cats, whatever, we don't necessarily think about how they see the world. We, we're not necessarily good at really understanding what's going on on their side of the fence. And I think it's a brilliant insight to like to go in and actually question, you know, when you look at an elevator, how do dogs think about those, like t- the ability to A, try to take the perspective of the dog, but even just like B, the, the act of asking the question is to me, actually, there's something really interesting there. Like... Can we get better at going in and looking at whoever is surrounding us and ask, I wonder how they experience the world and and get curious about what other people are getting up to with their lives?
0: Oh, 100%. I, I think that's um, a great, great sentiment to leave the conversation with tonight, thinking more about others and the spaces that you're in, 100%. Um, Thomas, thank you so much for being part of Mouthwash and also TBD earlier this year. Um, any final thoughts or advice for listeners when it comes to reframing or power?
1: Uh, I'd start, I'd say uh, reframing is a tool for power. Like it, You'll notice that the people who frame the question. They are often very powerful because that framing subsequently determines a lot of things. So I suggest to you, this is a skill that you can get better at, and you can start by the stuff on my website. You can look at the book if you think that's interesting. It's out last year, as mentioned, with from Harvard Business Press. Uh, you can watch some of my videos and so on. But this is a skill that can really really make a big difference if you get good at it, and it's not that difficult to get good at. You you'll like even after reading my book and working through some of the examples there, you'll be better at it than most people. So start practicing reframing
0: if you think this
1: is a skill you want to get better at.
0: Brilliant. Okay, folks, that was episode four of season two. Thank you so much for listening. How do we do? Let me know and the world uh, by using the hashtag MouthWashShow. Um, I am thrilled to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two. Thomas was just one of them. I've curated a bevy of brains from Bloomberg's Brad Stone. He wrote the Jeff Bezos bio and Beauty Stack's Charmadine Reed. The FT's Henry Mance is up tomorrow. He's going to tell us about the power of politics, and God knows I need answers. Um, we also have a Kung Fu master and an uncertainty expert slash pirate sam conniff who's also coming up this season so make sure you check out mouthwash for full details downloadable calendars and links to previous episodes which are now a sexy little podcast on spotify apple music and most podcast platforms once again my thanks to the phenomenal thomas weddell and please buy the book what's your problem and find out more on how to reframe.com or thomas weddell Com. Please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for him as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thanks again um, for joining and thanks to the beautiful people over at Ecology for planting a tree for every one of you and everyone else we get in season two. So tell a friend. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you confident only on Twitter spaces. Off you pop, brush your teeth and make sure you start and finish your day with plenty of mouthwash. Thanks ever so much. I'll speak to you soon.